everyone. You're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. You can contact me from my webpage, katecopsey.com, or through America's Web Radio Station site. Today's show is sponsored by our friends at Bonnie Plants. Thank you to them. This morning, we are going to talk to Janice Ray, an award-winning creative writer and farmer from South Georgia, currently the William Kittredge Distinguished Visiting Writer in Missoula, Montana. Good morning, Janice. Hi, how are you? Good morning to you, Kate. I'm doing fine, and I would imagine that uh, Montana is just very different from uh, Georgia. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> I'm watching, I'm looking out the window at the moment at snow falling, and, you know, we have a farm sitter back home, and he's giving us updates, and back home, the azaleas are blooming, and the daffodils, and people already have their potatoes planted, and they're planting the, they're planting the cool weather crops, you know, the, the kohlrabis and cabbages, so it's just such a different place. But, but amazingly wild and beautiful here, so we're very much enjoying it. Um, so it's been a wicked winter all round, and we're still struggling. Oh. So, so I don't know anybody that's put peas or anything like that in yet, and here we are almost into April. Amazing. <laughs> okay, what's been really good for me here in Montana this, these three months is, is watching how local food is done here and, you know, there's a year-round market where people are selling homemade kombucha and sprouts and, you know, uh, root vegetables that they've been able to to save in root cellars. Um, and so they're gearing up right now, even though it's, you know, it's, it's, it's early, early, it's, it's still late winter or early spring, they're gearing up um, starting seedlings in their offices and in their houses under grow lights and and starting onion seedlings and and so it's it's been fabulous to see the season extension kind of work that has to happen here, which is not what we have to focus on at, at our home in southern Georgia. I mean the season extension for us happens into the summer. And, and the strange thing is that's traditionally been the growing season for, you know, South Georgians or Southerners. And yet we find that our best crops are growing uh, spring, fall, winter, and spring. And summer, as it, as it heats up, is getting harder and harder to, to produce. So um, just an, an interesting kind of field trip here into growing. Yes, and uh, so anyway, um, you have obviously been growing and saving seeds for quite a while, Um, but when did you start getting interested in growing and come to realize that the seeds and and species were dying out? So I come from people who are agrarian. My mother came from a farm but married my father, and then they moved and started a junkyard. But I got to visit my grandparents' farm on Saturdays growing up, and I saw my grandmother, you know, taking a cashaw and saving the seeds, scooping out the seeds and putting them on a little aluminum pie plate to dry. Um, I, I recognized as a very, very young child that there was this important, this important economy in seeds. There was this 
But, you know, seeds were a kind of magic, uh, not only to children but to adults. And so I understood very young the value of seeds. But I was a young woman, and I mean, really in my early 20s, and recognized that that I wanted to homestead. I, I was born in 62, so I was sort of in, at the end of that whole back-to-the-land movement. But I had enough friends, you know, made enough friends who were in that movement that I wanted to be part of it. And I knew that it was the life, it was the life that would make me happy. And so I began to read... Um, the, the Seed Savers Exchange had begun, you know, in the 70s, and I had begun to read about their work. And so I was very young when I realized that we were losing agrodiversity. But I became a nature writer. I, I have written uh, five books about the loss of ecosystems or species or wildlands. And it wasn't until recently, you know, I realized that all my work deals with a kind of, of grief, of, of loss, of, of hopelessness even, in the face of these huge environmental uh, catastrophes and, and, um, and diminishment. And so I, I wanted this last book to be more a book about hope, which is what I see with the local food movement that it's a way that we're returning ourselves to nature and to the land by beginning to pay attention to what we eat. It, you know, our, our diets are things that pretty much we can control. You know, we can decide what we want to eat and how we want to source that food. And, and our bodies are still under our control, not under any other control for the most part. And I thought that was, it's such a hopeful thing. And so this last book is actually veers me away from nature writing into this kind of agricultural literature. And, but, but honestly, the knowledge of the loss of vintage varieties came to me early. I, I'm now 52, and that would have been more like 22. And, and, you know, and I know that um, the industrialization and I guess the standardization of food distribution uh, probably contributed to, to this. Um, but, but do you think we may be, um, and obviously we lost a, um, or we were losing a lot of seeds and varieties, but in recent years there's been a lot of interest going back to heirlooms. So um, is it too late to backtrack and still save a lot of these seeds? Have how many do you think we've lost along the way? That, that is a great question. In 2005, two University of Georgia researchers, Paul Heald and Susanna Chapman, did a study in which they looked at, at varieties, open-pollinated varieties, available on the market in 1901 and 1902 as compared to those still available in seed catalogs in 2004. So this was a, a century-wide span, and they found that 94% of the varieties available in the early 1900s were not available in 2004, a 94% loss of heirloom varieties. Now, let me just back up one minute so that all of your listeners understand the word open-pollinated. Open-pollinated or open-source seeds are the ones that you can that are commonly available on the marketplace. They are not patented by a, another a company. 
you can plant them and and they will return to you fruit that then you can plant again and get the same exact fruit. So they continue generation after generation after generation with more or less the same genetic makeup, small variances, but not the huge variances that you get when with hybrids. If you plant a hybrid seed you and save those seeds, you will get back any number of the ancestral strains used in breeding that hybrid. So that's the definition of open pollinated. The second thing, Kay, is that amazingly, these two researchers found that the total number of seeds, of open pollinated seeds available between these two in this 100-year span was about the same, about 7,000 seed varieties in the marketplace. However, so, so you have to ask yourself, well, if we've lost 94%, where does this, where is this made up? Since, you know, where do we make up this 94% since we have about the same number of varieties? Well, these are new introductions by plant breeders who are, you know, who have decided to take their, their innovation on out to open pollination. And we can explain that. It's a little bit complicated. So it's new. It's new varieties that have been introduced that are open pollinated. It's new introductions from other countries, like a new Ghanan okra or a new Swiss chard. And then the third thing is it's folk varieties that uh, people, you know, these seedsmen and seedswomen have found combing the countryside for old-timey heirloom vintage varieties and then brought them back into the marketplace. Now, we have to look at genetics here for just a minute. We don't know if this new seed is genetically the same as this old seed that we found in a seed catalog, but um, we have to assume that it will be genetically different. So the 94% loss is there. Will we get those back? We will not. Um, those are gone forever. The, the way we've been able to say some of them is some family will have a jar full of old cantaloupe seed in the freezer and, you know, somebody finds it and grows them out and two of them germinate and then we've kept alive this strain. But in general, a 94% loss. And, and this co- covers, um, I, I guess, fla- flowers and trees as well as vegetables and grain varieties, or um, I know there are some grains that might have been lost as well. Well, it definitely covers grain varieties. The, the trees and, and bear, I, I, I'm just going to say that, that, it's going, that we're going to find about that much uh, loss in agrodiversity across the board of foodstuffs. So, for example, the, we had about 7,000 varieties of apple trees in this country in this um, in this country at the turn of the that would be the, the the 20th century. And now you go into the store and you can find Granny Smith, you know, red delicious, yellow delicious. Um, there are a few orchards that are finding old cylon uh, trees and and bringing back some of these old varieties of apples, for example. So, you know, we're, we're in the middle of this amazing movement to recover a lot of this lost food. But, you know, to, to answer your question, 
the the fact remains we will not be able to recover all of it. Um, I, I tend to think of the early 1900s as kind of the heyday of 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 a cornucopia, meaning I believe that was the period of time that it, everything that I've seen indicates that that would be the period of time that we had the most varieties of food to choose from uh, in general. Uh, and that would be cabbages, collards, okras, tomatoes. Just It was sort of just this heyday for, for seed development and food development. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we need to go for our first commercial break, Janice. Um, but we will be back talking more with Janice Ray about seed saving and preservation. And when we come back, we'll talk something about the people that are doing all this saving. We'll be back in just a moment. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at America's Homegrown Veggies. And if you miss any shows, you can find them on americaswebradio.com webpage. You can find them on iTunes and Stitchers. This morning, we are talking with Janice Ray, 
author of The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution. And we talked a little about seeds in general, um, Jenny. So let's talk to some of the interesting stories about people that you write about in this book. Um, and the first story you, you have is a lady in Vermont, um, S- Sylvia Davats. Um, was she the first um, revolutionary gardener that you found? And how did you approach her? I'm so glad you used the word revolutionary. Uh, That's the subtitle of the book, you know, The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food. And I call it The Seed Underground because, you know, we plant the seed underground, but also what I'm saying here is below the radar, in the underground, there there is a cadre of gardeners and growers and farmers who are keeping alive uh, genetic diversity. You know, a lot of them... Don't, most of them wouldn't think of themselves as revolutionaries at all, and yet they live outside the, the world of corporate uh, seed patenting, uh, of industrial hybridization, of, you know, of, of global uh, genetic modification. They live outside that world. And, and so uh, Sylvia Devot is a very interesting woman in that she started her own little seed company in central Vermont. Her mission is to be as profoundly local as possible. When I first arrived, um, she asked me to come in, and, and she she called herself the Imelda, the Imelda Marcos of seeds. She said, she laughed. She said, I have a thousand varieties in my closet. And, and I saw oh, her wow. seed bank. It's, and little tiny refrigerators down in her basement, and, and definitely a thousand varieties. Where from those varieties, she's growing out trials to find the the varieties that are at, that do as as well as possible in her in her climate and also microclimate. What was most amazing about that visit was the things she said, were the things she said. Um, She told me this. She said, the system is so broken, not only broken, but destructive and self-destructive. So I was listening, and I didn't know what she meant by system. I figured maybe she meant the agricultural system or the food system, maybe even the entire political system. But I just listened, and she continued, and she said, I see in activism a kind of futility. The real power is in doing. The real power is in making the system irrelevant. That means non-participation in the existing broken system. Well, she didn't know that I was this activist, you know, worried about climate change and dressing up as a penguin to hold up signs and, you know, doing, doing crazy activism things, getting arrested. And, and, but what she said made so much sense to me, and that is, instead of fighting a system, instead of always working on the negative side of things, why not be a part of the positive change, of, of, of creating a different system? And so that is mostly what I learned from her. She, she experiments with not using fossil fuels of any kind. She's very community-driven. She, she has a, every year she hosts a work, a seed saving workshop that happens, it happens like a three hour span every Saturday. You come to her garden and you watch things 
grow and bloom, and then you harvest seeds, and you winnow them and package them. So you see, it, 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 it's in the, the late summer, fall of the year, so you see the entire process. And that's been her contribution for helping people understand that we, if we don't grow our own food and save our own seeds, then we are not in charge of our food supply. The other thing that we talked about is that there's a, a great movement in this country to grow local and eat local. And she said it, it, we have to move toward local seeds. Right now, our seeds are grown all over the world. You know, wherever we, wherever it's cheapest to hire people to grow these things and harvest these seeds, maybe sometimes pollinating by hand, that's where they're grown. And yet, a seed growing in your climate, even your climate in New Jersey, a seed begins to adapt to that, to those conditions, those conditions of of wet and dry, heat and cool, and, and so on. And I believe in this era of impending, of climate change and impending climate change, that it's very important for us to start to use locally adapted seeds and also to start to reclaim sovereignty over seeds so that we own our food supply well into the future. Yeah. So that's more or less what I learned from Sylvia. And, and she, she must have been a really inspiring lady. I mean, there, and there's a lot of logic in, in I guess, what, what she said. I mean, you, you can whine all you like about a system being broken, but the, really you, the real power is when you do something about it. And, uh, you know, um, but uh, you met a guy called um, Doug Tarver. And I, I, from what I, I read, it was kind of a, a warm day, and and he was he suggested that seed catalogs should indicate the work hours uh, needed on a packet, which I heartily endorse. Um, but he was sa- saving a bean called the preacher bean. Um, how did you meet him, and what was that particular the story behind that particular bean? So, so Kate, I had met I had met Doug Tarver previously. Um, and so we were acquainted, but, you know, a little more than that. But we were both, we both happened to be a fundraiser for a river in our region called the Satilla River. And so we were at this gala event, and this man, I didn't remember him, but he decided to sit down next to me at, um, at a table. And so when we, we began to talk, and I realized who he was, and we were talking about gardening. And then it turns out that he told me the story of a bean that his family has grown for, you know, now over a hundred years. These beans were given to his grandmother. Her name was Katie Tarver, and she was a, a gardener, a devoted gardener, he called it, uh, from northern Louisiana, LaSalle Parish. So these beans had been grown by a country preacher. And the preacher had been moved by his church, by the, you know, the big church, to another, uh, another diocese or, or whatever it would be called there. So he was called to minister elsewhere, and he came, he was visiting his, um, his uh, people. And he, when he visited Miss Katie, he brought her a gift of these tan and purple seeds, uh, and 
he told her the name of them, but she couldn't remember the name. And so from that point on, she called them preacher beans. And they still grow them. He, they still call them preacher beans. And, um, you know, they look a lot like rattlesnake beans to me. Are they rattlesnake beans? No. They're, they are, they would no doubt be a very distinct, have a distinct genetic makeup. But, but part of what, there's so many things to say here. Part of what is important to this story is not simply that we're conserving genetic resources, but also the cultural resources. That we live in a culture where, you know, as we sit on front porches talking less, um, and we watch TV more, we lose the stories that, uh, which, is, which are our culture. Culture is a set of stories that define and explain our relationship to a place. And, and with, with our increased moving about for jobs and college and, and you know, careers, uh, education, we, we've become more of a placeless people, a homeless people. And so we're losing these stories like this story of Katie Tarver and the preacher being. And so people like the, the Tarver are not only revolutionary genetically, but also culturally, because he's keeping this important story alive. So Doug sent me, the very next week, he sent me uh, a pack of these beans, and he gave me some very definite instructions to never plant the whole pack, you know, and and keep back a quarter of them. I can't remember exactly what he said, but I think a quarter of them or half of them for the next year. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself up a creek. So the, the thing about Doug Tarver is he, he's not an unusual person. The, you can go to any, I mean, you were telling me, Kate, you were telling me about an older gentleman in Ohio that you met who was a seed saver and actually owned a seed store. Um, these people are everywhere. At every party, you're going to find somebody whose family has some watermelon or okra or corn or tomato, or they found the tomato. I mean, we, our history, our collective history, with agriculture has been fairly recent. Within the past 100 years, the majority of us were agrarian. And so it's a very recent history that we're trying to cling to and to save and to bring back. And it's happening. Yeah. I know we're talking about the people here, but I just want to mention that there, there's, a whole, there's a whole movement of, of new age, new you know, kind of new world seed savers. I'm in Missoula at the moment, as you mentioned, and there's a seed library, the Five Five Valley Seed Library is down in the Missoula Public Library. Oh, wow. You can go there and check out a pack of seeds, plant it. You never have to return the seed. They encourage you to learn to save seeds, and they offer seed saving classes to that end. And so you can, at the end of the growing season, then harvest seed, repackage, and put them back into the library. Oh, these wow. people are exactly like Doug Turner. They are keeping alive not only the seeds, but also the stories of these things that grow really well here in, in, Montana, in Western Montana. That, that 
is a wonderful resource. Um, I, I can't imagine a library do, doing that, but what a tremendous resource for an area. But, you know, we need to go for another quick commercial break, but I want to remind you that you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggies, and we'll be back with more from Janice Ray, and we're going to talk some more about some of the seeds that were, were saved um, through these movements. We will be right back. Quick Stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You're back listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking with Janice Ray about the importance of saving seeds. And we've talked about a couple of the people that, that were in the book. Um, so now we're going to talk about maybe some of the seeds that uh, Janice found. Um, and one of the things I, I, I guess I, I, I learned from Bill Best was that when, with beans particularly, they seem to be found at the bottom of freezers, particularly when a, a, an elderly relative has passed on and they're kind of at the bottom of freezers. Was this the normal way to, to save the seeds? That's a great question, Kate. Most people don't understand that, that a seed has a lifespan just like a human or like a dog. And um, every year that passes, a seed loses more viability until it's finally gone and it can't be resurrected. Um, the, the way that we store them, that we save them and store them will ensure longer uh, longer viabilities. And, and that would be your refrigerator. Okay, first, you want to get as much moisture out of the seed as possible. Uh, you want to be able to break the seed instead of folding it and it just sort of, you know, limply folds in half. If you want it, it would be better for it to crack, and that's most seeds or flat seeds. Then... Put it in some kind of airtight container and put it in your refrigerator. Even better than the refrigerator is the freezer. Now, if you're going to store your seeds in a deep freezer, they they can last there for many, many, many years. You know, some seeds, we found seeds, uh, I think, 600 years old or some of the oldest seeds that we've found. Uh, 
But when you take them out of the freezer to use them again, you need to bring them back to room temperature so you don't form this condensation that then, you know, that whole... So one thing that will will um, erase viability in a state is, is moving it back and forth from hot to cold and, and it condensing and forming moisture and so forth. So, yes, you're exactly right. The freezer is the best place. Now, it, I tend to wonder, you stop me or interrupt me, but, but um, if we're looking at a time ahead when we may be, more of us will be using alternative energy, solar panels, we may not have as much access to uh, cheap electricity. You know, I, I've done a lot of thinking about where we would save our seeds, and I think just as 100 years ago, the people who lived on our farm did not have refrigeration or freezers, and so what they did was just used airtight jars and, and whatever they could find to keep seeds in. And so that makes that that makes it important to keep gardening because what your garden becomes is a living gene bank. The garden is a place where you are replenishing. Your, your supply. And so it's, it's interesting that we have the, the Svalbard Seed Vault in Norway, um, the Doomsday Vault. It's, it's, um, it's called, and, and, and you know, we're, we're sending packets of all kinds of varieties of seeds there in the worst case scenario of climate change and seeds rising and nuclear disaster and whatever that we might be able to still have this genetic um, diversity, but the best gene storage is in a garden being saved year after year. And I think it kind of it closes um, a season when when you uh, start start from from seed and and you grow something and you enjoy it and then you just take maybe one or two tomatoes or maybe um, one big plant of beans and you save it for the following year. Um, it, it seems like it, it's a natural cycle that we should be going to, and that that's another thing maybe that has broken with this constant buying new seeds every year. Um, and then you just either eat or discard the plant at the end. Yeah, you make a great point, and I want to add as well that if you're a seed saver, then you necessarily have to let your plants go to seed, bulb and flower. And as gardeners, we've been told not to do that. You know, when that when that bok choy starts bolting, you yank it up and get something else in the ground there. So what happens is that we lose these pollinators, you know, that could be just swarming our gardens because they don't have anything to eat. And once you become a seed saver and you figure out, like, okay, I'm going to plant parsnip in this bed. The parsnip is a biennial, which means it's going to have to overwinter in this bed. Next spring it's going to shoot up and send up a flower stalk, and then I'm going to have more parsnip parsnip seed that I know what to do with. If you plan ahead and you have enough space, or even if you don't have much space, but you save enough plants back, then you you are more in tune with the cycle of life. You have more flowers in your garden, and you have more insects, pollinators, butterflies. 
Yeah, and it's kind of a win-win situation, I think. Um, but I know that um, obviously peas and, and tomatoes are some of the most common vegetables. Um, do, do they suffer from? I, there's been a, a lot of new um, varieties, particularly in um, tomatoes, and a lot of those heirloom varieties have come back. Um, but I haven't seen it quite so much in in some of the other ones. And I know one one of the ones that you um, you talk about. Um, a guy called Jeff Bickard, he sold seven, 11 varieties of beans, well, okay, 18 varieties of potatoes. I didn't know there were 18 varieties. And 160 varieties of gooseberries. Um, that's an astonishing number. Um, and th- these were all old varieties of, that have died, down, died out? Well, not so much died out, but there's definitely old varieties that aren't readily available in commercial markets. So... If you thumb through the Seed Savers Exchange uh, member catalog, that's where members are offering old seed and, and exchanging them, you'll see, I mean, the figures are just astounding. It just, I, I personally, it was collards that shook my world because, you know, we in the South, collards is a very important green and it grows most all winter, and, uh, you know, the old-timers lived on collards in the winter, collards and cornbread and, and salt pork. Um, I thought that there were just a couple of varieties of collards, Georgia collards, baked collards. But what I learned is that at one of the gene, uh, the USDA has these uh, gene accession units where it's basically the federal gene bank. And um, there's one in South Carolina that cultivates collards, and there's just hundreds of varieties of collards. So right now I have a collard that I grow. Um, it's called Green Glaze. It has a very shiny leaves. Now, the interesting thing here is that old varieties, heirlooms, vintage varieties, did not necessarily have to respond to industrialized agriculture. So they didn't have to all ripen at the same time in the field or look beautiful on the grocery store shelf or just, or, uh, you know, ship well. You could grow a thin-skinned cantaloupe that would never ship, that, you know, ripened gradually over time, that tasted heavenly. And so the, the, the point here that I want to make is that different varieties of seeds have different nutritional makeups. So what we've done, uh, there, there's a, there was a, he's retired now, but there was a researcher at the University of Texas in Austin named Don Davis who simply looked at USDA figures over the past 50 years uh, for nutritional content of crops. And he found across-the-board declines in nutrients, micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, across the board, some as high as like a 33% decline in maybe vitamin C, for example. So there, there, there are two reasons for that. One is we're not growing organically. We're growing chemically, and, and a, a plant grows fast when grown with chemicals, but it doesn't necessarily uptake from the soil all the vitamins and minerals and 
and micronutrients that our bodies need. So, so the way we grow is one problem. The second uh, is what we grow, that we are growing more industrially bred varieties that do not necessarily give us the same nutrition as the varieties that our foreparents were growing. So I say all that to explain that if I blindfolded you and fed you steamed collars that were vaped and steamed Georgia collars and steamed green glaze collars, you would taste the difference in all three of those collars. A collar is not a collar. And to me, green glaze is much sweeter, a much richer taste, and I think that's because it's an older variety and and they grow well in the south obviously um which, which is obviously a, a, a great addition um so how many other different varieties did you try and that's all that i've tried i've only tried that one thing and here's here's um, i'm glad you're asking this kate because here's my problem is that i what i've done i've met I've met wonderful seed savers who are saving 700 varieties of tomato, and that's their life's mission. What I want to do is not grow hybrids and definitely not go grow genetically modified crops of any kind, but only grow and continue to grow those things that really do well in my soil and in my climate. I'm trying to feed myself, my family, and my community really well. So I do a ton of trials of things, and then I usually just pick one and go with it. Now, the reason for this is part just sheer, I want to say laziness, but I'm not going to be that self-deprecating. It's really <laughs> lack of time that I know that collars are going to cross-pollinate if they're not kept separated by, you know, a quarter-mile distance or a, yeah. a distance of a couple of weeks in blooming time. Like, you know, there are different ways to isolate these collars, but if they're not isolated, they cross. And so I just make things easy for myself and grow one or two things. Now, the great thing about most tomatoes and most beans is that they self-pollinate before the flower opens. And so you can grow as many kinds of those things as you want. They're very easy to say. The seeds are very easy to say. And, and but, say, there, there are so many heirloom um, ver varieties, particularly of the tomatoes. But, you know, we need to take our, our final commercial break here, but come back and listen to more from Janice Ray and the Seed Underground, a growing revolution, after these messages. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's FoodLink was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source. 
the people who work every day to provide it. Feedstuffsfoodlink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. I hope you're enjoying America's homegrown veggie show this morning. We have been talking with Janice Ray about her award-winning book, The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food. Um, and Jan- Janice, this book has been out for about 18 months or so, and it's available on Kindle from Amazon, and that was the way I got it. Um, but I, I was saying this is the sort of book that I think deserves to be in paper copy because it's the sort of thing, the stories you tell, I think are are great for reading outside in a hammock under a tree because they are so intriguing. And and you've got, I mean, we barely touched any of them. There's, what, 40 different people and seeds in there? Uh, I don't know exactly how many seeds, but thank you so much for your kind words about the book. And and I would hope that it's a book that people would want to take out under a hammock and read. But, you know, I would think that, Kate, that you're kind of the perfect audience. I'm, when you when you look at the demographics of the U.S., you know, over two-thirds of us now live in very, in very urban areas. We don't even have places to garden. And, you know, you know that the number of people who live rural lives is, is shrinking all the time. So sometimes, you know, I, I wonder who the audience really is. And yet... What is amazing is is that there is a connection between books and plants and gardens and, and the people people who love to garden usually love to read. I know that you wanted I will say this, I, I love selling books, but I always tell people that you could probably get this book at your local public library. I'm a huge proponent of libraries being community center centers and I am a proponent of information being uh, common and available. And so nobody has to buy this book and read it on their Kindle or even buy it at the bookstore. I love supporting local bookstores too, but just remember that your public library could probably order it for you. And if somebody wants to order it from the publisher, the publisher is a wonderful small press in White River Junction, Vermont, called Chelsea Green Publishing. They have, if you haven't been to their website, do. They have an amazing amount of, of how to do it yourself, you know, uh, back to the land, wild foraging, growing kind of books. And, and, and they offer, they offer often their discount is larger than the Amazon discount. Yeah, and I, I think that they're, they're a great little publishing house because, say, they, they, they do unique books. I mean, they're, they're not the starting gardening type books or, or the generic type rehash of square foots and, and raised beds and things like that. They're just unique people that, uh, that write them. And I, that, that I think is part of the, the captivation with, with a, say, your, your book, um, and Bill Best's book on uh, the Appalachian Seed Savers. That, that was in the same vein and from the same publisher, I believe. Um, but you've got a website. It's janiceray.com. Is that correct? So in the middle there is Weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y. So Janice Ray, J-A-N-I-S-S-E-R-A-Y dot Weebly dot com. And that will give you just, you know, 
take where I'm reading and, and giving workshops and talks, but I'll also let people know that our farm in southern Georgia, it's, a, it's, a, it's our private home, but occasionally we open it up for workshops on how to make uh, mozzarella and ricotta cheese or how to save seeds or how to garden organically or how to do nature riding. And our, the farm's name is Red Earth Farm. And um, so somebody could Google Red Earth Farm and Southern Georgia. We're in Reedsville. I, I recently realized that, that there's a, a new farm in Georgia that's taken the same name, Red Earth. Ooh. They call themselves Red Earth Organic Farm. So you'd have to look for ours, but we're down there. And, um, you know, if somebody was in the area, we'd love to have them stop by. How, how far south in Georgia is is that? Is that down towards Savannah um, or, or that area? Yes, we're four hours south of Atlanta, and okay. we're about an hour inland from Savannah. And we're just in the coastal plain area, those flat, flat plains. Our farm happens to be in the delta of two great rivers, the Okupi River and the Altamahal. But, yes, uh, down near Savannah. Oh, wonderful. And right right now you're, you're up in um, Montana as a visiting lecturer up there. Um, so, so you've got some workshops up there as well, right? So I'm here at the invitation of the Environmental Studies Department at the University of Montana. My family and I came to Missoula for, to teach for the semester, and I'm teaching a graduate-level class in environmental writing and working with uh, 15 students here to um, perfect their own work and, and begin to send it out for publication. So um, I'm, the, the, the title of this position is the William Kittredge Visiting Writer, William Kittredge being a very popular Western nature writer who, um, who taught at the University of Montana for many years and who actually was my mentor. So yes, we're in Missoula at the present. So 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 you do um, talk talks on a variety of of different subjects, and I know on your on your site um, you've got some great photographs. How how many of those are from the north, and how many I guess are from from the south? Do you keep that up to date with uh, where, whereabouts you're talking and things like that? I should do better because you know how you see photographs of authors and they look so young and then you see them and they look so old. <laughs> My, the last photographs I took were at least two years ago and I I hate to say it, but I've aged so much in two years, I think people are not going to recognize me. So I could do a better job of, of putting more recent photographs up. But most of them I would think would be from the South. Yeah. And and so when when do you go back down to the to the South? Is it at the end of this we, semester? Yes, we will be back home by uh, by mid May. By mid May, and and it's going to be a very we've missed the entire you know planting season. We have a farm center, but I don't we I'm not really keeping up with. I don't know how much he's planting for us, so it's probably going to be a late garden for us this year. Um, but we'll go down and we'll immediately start trying to get, we'll probably buy transplants this year, and I probably will plant much of our heirlooms in the garden. I mean, of the heirlooms that are in the freezer. And so it may be that I just skip this year for growing things and then come back at it next year. Because I, I think by the time we get home, we'll just have to buy, you know, tom tomato seedlings yeah. and, and, and go with it. 
Yeah, and unless you can get somebody maybe to grow them for you and, and put them into oh, the garden. That's, that's, that's a great idea. But see, by middle, the middle of the end of July and the first of August, we're already planting the fall crops. So those crops like green glazed collars and green piece kale and you know all those uh, hollow crown parts, all those fall crops um, will will be definitely be home in time to get the fall garden. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and that of course is, uh, down, down on the the red clay, you it, it you can grow almost for seasons around. Um, but you know, we we're getting towards the the end of the the show, Jenny's. Um, but is there one thing that maybe gardeners can do starting today, a kind of a call to action type of thing to help this movement? What would it be? Well, I think just realizing that our seeds are in jeopardy is going to be the first step. I think we've done a great job in this country. You know, we've read Animal Vegetable Miracle, a lot of us, and The Omnivore's Dilemma, and we've just done a really fabulous job understanding uh, the need for local agriculture. That, you know, if if the bigger systems fail, as Sylvia DeVos um promises they will, then we have to have local systems in place. And so we understand that. And I think we are understanding that organic food, that can, let's just, I'm just going to say this, it's blunt, it's that chemical food it causes cancer and chemical food is killing us. And that we are going to have to grow more nutritious organic food. So those things we're understanding. But I don't think, I think we're yet on the precipice of understanding that we're going to have to protect our, our seed supply in order for, to, for, to protect our food into the future. So the reasons are so that we can have this amazing diversity on our plates, these different tastes on our palates, so that we can control, that we can have sovereignty over seeds, and so that we can maintain um, agrodiversity in the face of whatever conditions are, are heading our way. So that's my main point, is if you haven't heard what's happening with seeds, let me tell you, they're disappearing, but along with that disappearance is a lot of revolutionary gardeners who are working, who are devoting entire lives to making sure that we carry the human food supply as far into the future as we have brought it thus far. And, and of course, the byproduct of of that is great tasting um, food and and diversity of of what you can eat. Because you mentioned collards. Um, I, I think you can probably get a pathetic little one variety of uh, collards in the corner of the supermarket, but you don't really get that. Uh, most people don't buy them. Um, so you get that diversity in, in what you're eating, which um, uh, all, all the um, nutrition people t- tell us, you know, when you've got more diversity, it, it's better for you, right? <laughs> oh, that's exactly right. And I think also, Kate, that we should speak to the people. I know the show is for gardeners and gardeners listen, but we should speak to the people who can't garden or don't garden, and and I think if you're if you're looking for something to do, then first of all, eat real food. That means shop around the outside of the supermarket. Learn to cook real food. If you're eating processed food, 
you are electing for agribusiness to feed you, and you're not supporting the preservation of heritage, heritage heirloom seeds, um, buy organic food, shop it at your local farmer's market. And then if you can grow a garden, even, you know, even a few pots of basil, then do it. Uh, buy open source seeds. So there's plenty that everybody can do, but it all starts with the knowledge that we have a problem and that we're all responsible for fixing it. Yeah, and you know, and, and I, I certainly think that uh, you know when, when we uh, we try try to grow things ourselves, you don't have to do the whole of the the week's meals from the, the, your own garden. Just try, uh, particularly, I think tomatoes are, are the one thing that really do make it worth taking it right from the garden. But, you know, we're right at the end of the show. But I want to thank everyone for listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show this morning. Thank you, Janice. You've been very inspiring to talk to and a great guest this morning. Uh, Thank you to Bonnie's for sponsoring the show today. We'll be back next week with another show talking all about growing veggies. Have a good gardening week, everyone, and join me back here next Saturday. This is AmericasWebRadio.com. The best in chat radio designed just for you. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants.